Hi, everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens, and this is the 11th session in our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth. Tonight, we cover chapters 13 and 14 of The Hobbit, Not at Home and Fire and Water, in which the dwarves finally return to the halls of their fathers. And then we learn what happened to Smaug, the greatest and most terrible of calamities. This indicates a sharp turn in the narrative. Fire and Water is an exceptional chapter. It is exceptional, I think, in many senses of the word. It is certainly a great piece of narrative, but it is also unlike any other chapter that we're going to find within the frame of this book. We'll talk more about that when we get to it in just a little bit. I see everyone here in the YouTube chat. You can, of course, ask questions and make comments live here in the YouTube chat, or you can find me on Twitter using the hashtag TabAgain, T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N for, of course, there and back again. Here in the YouTube chat, we have Chesley and we have Leslie and we have Sarah and we have Shane and we have Angela. We have many, many, many people with us tonight. It is great to have you all here. We also have, I should say, David, who is joining us for the first time. David, I'm very glad to have you with us. I hope that you enjoy tonight's session. Um, a lot of love here already for Fire and Water. Yes. Did you get better video, says Becca? You seem crisp. No, but I do have better lights, and that's important, it turns out. Um, yes. <laughs> Hopefully I'm looking a little sharper than I have been in the last few weeks. Good. Good. All right. We've got a lot to cover tonight. Uh, there's, there's a lot of ground to get through, and the discussions that we're going to have are going to focus, of course, on these twin ideas, I suppose, of hall and of home. We are going to see the dwarves re-enter the Lonely Mountain. We are going to see them re-enter the lost, the previously lost kingdom of Erebor. They are going to reconnect with their own fundamental identities in a powerful way. And of course, that is going to exert a powerful influence on Bilbo, who is at this point, at this exact moment, at his furthest point. He is never going to be further away from the Shire than he is right now. He is never going to be further away from his home than he is right now. And we look at that, I think, in some really interesting ways. Here again, we apply this fascinating metaphorical juxtaposition between the mountain on the one hand and the hill on the other. These two extremes of Tolkien's secondary creation, the two pillars that define the boundaries of this world. That is going to be, I hope, a fascinating conversation too as we move into it. And we're going to talk too a little about Bard the Bowman, the, the heir of Girion. We're going to talk a little about the way that the narrative shifted and changed as Tolkien was writing. And, and this may be one of those instances where Tolkien has not terribly effectively reintegrated a revision into the rest of the manuscript. There is a sharp turn as we move into Fire and Water, and the introduction of Bard the Bowman is perhaps the most conspicuous element there. It's fascinating to see how Tolkien here has either failed to or chosen not to. I think that, that we'll certainly explore that in due course too. Chosen not to integrate this chapter as fully as he has some of the others. And of course, he had Plenty of opportunity to do that as he was writing the first draft of The Hobbit and then as he moved into the first published version. And then, of course, almost 20 years later, when he returned to The Hobbit to make some major modifications to Chapter 5, Riddles in the Dark, he somehow resisted the urge to, to better integrate and better fit fire and water into the rest of the narrative. It still stands apart, and it stands apart with a conspicuous frame. We'll get to all of that, of course. Um... Yes. Is there chocolate in Middle-earth? 
asks Finite here in the YouTube chat. That is a fascinating question. I take it we're picking up on some other previous discussion of chocolate. I have no idea. I don't think so. And I don't think that Tolkien would have allowed for the addition of chocolate uh, to Middle-earth. He was very strict about those elements which were included in his depiction of Middle-earth. Less strict, perhaps, in The Hobbit. We talked, I think, way back in the first section, uh, the first session, about the anachronistic clock on Bilbo's wall. That doesn't quite fit with our understanding of the, the technology available in the Shire. It feels somewhat anachronistic, but generally speaking, Tolkien was very strict about not just the, the elements which were included in his secondary creation, but even the words that he used to describe those elements. One of the big revisions that you'll see moving from The Hobbit into The Lord of the Rings is that we lose the word tobacco, and we replace it with the word pipeweed. That was incredibly purposeful. That was that was a deliberate act by Tolkien because he wanted to remove the relatively modern word tobacco, certainly the, the non-native word tobacco, and replace it with something that was more harmonious with this vision of, of the ancient prehistory of our modern world. So when he replaces it with pipeweed, which of course lends some uh, speculation to, to certain incidents in, in The Lord of the Rings. He wasn't making a, a purposeful substantive change. He was simply changing the name to better reflect the kind of language that he wanted to use. As I think I've noted before, Tolkien, by preference, would use no word that entered the English language after the 15th century. He wanted that air of of antiquity. He wanted that air of, of almost archaic weight and grace. And ideally, of course, he would use no word that entered the English language after the Norman Conquest. He, he really liked that, that elemental kind of language, the, the simplest and oldest kind of language available to English speakers. That certainly is something that we see there in, in the shift from tobacco to pipeweed. And that would speak against, I think, the inclusion of chocolate in Middle Earth. But I like it. Yes. Yes. As Chesley says here in the YouTube chat, pipeweed invokes the images of marijuana, which was, of course, not his intent. This is something that has been somewhat misrepresented. If you read cheap and easy criticism of Tolkien, this is one of the jokes that will be made. And certainly if you watch the movie adaptations, this is one of the jokes that will be made too. There is a great deal of, of playful speculation about the nature of Pipeweed, certainly for the, the Hobbit, certainly for Merry and Pippin specifically in uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But then when we get to the Hobbit trilogy, we're even more deliberate in our reference there. We, we are using Pipeweed as the, the object of some fairly blunt comedy. It's not terribly impressive, yes. Clearly, says Robert Hickok, Lambus includes chocolate, also possibly cram, I don't know. Cram might, uh, might incorporate chocolate, yes. Good. Chocolate is here, yes. This is, uh, <laughs> it's scrolling so fast. Sarah Thomas says, as a resident of Middle-earth, I can assure you, chocolate is here, yes. How do you end a meal of a brace of conies without chocolate, asks Robert, presumably rhetorically. This is an excellent question, yes. Yes. And would no chocolate, asks Fina, uh, mean no coffee? But then there's tea. Yes. No coffee, I believe, uh, in The Lord of the Rings. Yes. Good. Excellent. Hope is going to get pie. Hope, I hope you have brought enough for the whole class. I hope that you have, you, you can share pie with all of us. I think that's only fair at this point, right? I could use some pie to get me through the next 90 minutes of discussion here on there and back again. Yes. Yes. Cram does sound kind of awful. I was going to pull the uh, the cram quote tonight, but I had to I had to leave it behind because uh, constraints of time, constraints of time and energy here uh, at Point North Media. But uh, yes, good, good. All right. Mm. 
And we're all very excited about Pi, the Pi that Hope is presumably going to share with all of us. At the very least, Hope, I think you owe us pictures of Pi. You can post those to Twitter using the hashtag T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N. I almost screwed up my own hashtag. It's just fine, you guys. It's just fine. Let's get into it then with our opening to chapter 13. This is the beginning of Not at Home. And I guess before we get to this specifically, I want to call out an unusual feature of this week's reading. Not at Home and Fire and Water are almost unique, I think, amongst the chapters contained within the pages of The Hobbit because they are named beautifully. Most of the chapter names that we'll see in the course of The Hobbit are fairly perfunctory. They are fairly straightforward. There's a certain grace to them. There's a certain poetry to them, certainly. But they don't really add to our understanding of the content. I would argue that in both Not at Home and in Fire and Water, we see a very purposeful framing of the content that we're about to read, a very a very specific metaphorical layer, a, 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 a thematic key almost, that introduces the story as it unfolds. We'll talk about Fire and Water, of course, when we get there, but we will definitely talk about uh, Not at Home and quite what that means as we move through the pages of, of this chapter. Good. Good. Kate says that I should share the wine. That seems unfair. I only have this very small glass of wine right here with me tonight as I, as I uh, discuss The Hobbit. But uh, I, I certainly would. You're, you're welcome anytime, Kate. Come on over. We have, you know, a, a box of excellent uh, black box Shiraz, I suppose, that we can share. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, and, and over on Twitter, Death or Glory Toad says, the cake is a lie, but not the pie. This, this definitively is why pie is better than cake. That might be a podcast for another time. I don't know. Or maybe just not a podcast at all. Not everything has to be a podcast, it turns out. All right, let's get to our first slide then and our introduction to chapter 13. This is um, the the opening moment of, of chapter 13. And I want to frame this really through a discussion of home, a discussion of belonging. Because even here beneath the Lonely Mountain, the dwarves have reached the end of their quest in a sense, but they are not yet home. And I want to look at the ways in which home speaks to the dwarves in this particular chapter. In the meanwhile, the dwarves sat in darkness, and utter silence fell about them. Little they ate, and little they spoke. They could not count the passing of time, and they scarcely dared to move, for the whisper of their voices echoed and rustled in the tunnel. If they dozed, they woke still to darkness, and to silence going on unbroken. At last, after days and days of waiting, as it seemed, when they were becoming choked and dazed for want of air, they could bear it no longer. They would almost have welcomed sounds from below of the dragon's return. In the silence, they feared some cunning devilry of his, but they could not sit there forever. Thorin spoke. Let us try the door, he said. I must feel the wind on my face soon or die. I think I would rather be smashed by Smaug in the open than suffocate in here. So several of the dwarves got up and groped back to where the door had been, but they found that the upper end of the tunnel had been shattered and blocked with broken rock. Neither Key nor the magic it had once obeyed would ever open <coughs> excuse me, would ever open that door again. We're trapped, they groaned. This is the end. We shall die here. So the dwarves have returned home. They are here. They have made it. And yet this doesn't feel like home. Here they are in a dwarven tunnel, and Thorin is longing for the wind on his face. They have not yet reintegrated to their 
to their uh, their home milieu, to their, their native culture, their native environment, in a sense. And we must remember that these are dwarves of Erebor. Though this event happened 150 years ago, though the, the great coming of Smaug and the, the rendering desolate of the surrounding countryside happened 150 years ago, these dwarves are of Erebor. This is their home, not just in a familial sense, not in a cultural sense, not in the sense of... of imparted heritage, but specifically, literally, this is their home. But here, huddled in the tunnel, in the dark, and the still, and the silence, it doesn't feel like home. One of the most interesting things that will happen in this chapter, I think, um, occurs right after this passage, when Bilbo, in response almost, it would seem, to the dwarves, who have been, we have to observe, swinging pretty wildly from 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 hope and, and courage to outright despair. They have been on this pendulum, this bipolar pendulum swing for the last few chapters. They have been, been arcing back and forth from, from you know, the darkest moments, the darkest moments of despair, through to a kind of unsupportable belief in their inevitable victory over Smaug, their, their, inevitably, their inevitable conquest, I should say, of Erebor, of the Lonely Mountain. Here, though, Bilbo has a moment of epiphany, of grace, of understanding, suddenly we are told he feels a lightning beneath his waistcoat. He feels as though hope is once again with him. And this is very curious, because if you track the timeline of The Hobbit, and it's not necessarily easy, because we don't quite know how long the dwarves were actually in the tunnels, but if you kind of if you look ahead in the story and build backward, you can pretty much figure out when this specific incident occurs. And it occurs more or less at the moment that Bard shoots Smaug with the black arrow and the dragon plunges into the lake. Bilbo's lightning of heart, his sudden moment of hope, seems connected to the death of the dragon. And I find that fascinating. I'm curious as to why Bilbo should have this moment of hope, of, of how he could possibly remotely be aware of the demise of Smaug. And one possible explanation can be inferred, I guess, from our discussion last week as we looked at the effect of the dragon's presence on Bilbo, and certainly the effect of the dragon's sickness specifically. When facing Smaug, Bilbo becomes more dragon-like. He becomes more draconic. He becomes more Smaugian, I suppose. He begins to to inflate his own importance. He begins to speak arrogantly. He begins to exhibit none of the usual caution and care that we would associate with young Bilbo Baggins. He is more like Smaug in those moments than he has been previously or than he ever will be again, though certainly we're not done with the dragon sickness just yet. I wonder if in those moments, if in that conversation with Smaug, some part of the dragon's presence was imparted to Bilbo, if he was, in some sense, falling under the sway of the dragon, if Smaug had begun this process of contamination, a magical process, perhaps, also, of course, a, a political process, also a, a, a rhetorical process, as Smaug begins to question in the previous chapter what it is that Bilbo hopes to accomplish, and most importantly, his relationship with the dwarves. Here, in the moment of Smaug's demise, Bilbo is suddenly freed. And that, I think, gives us one possible explanation for the lightning of heart. There are other explanations that this 
It could simply be a moment of Bilbo's famous luck that he is called upon now to take action and he takes action at the best possible time and he could simply be lucky. This is just a spontaneous lifting of the heart. This is just a spontaneous emergence of hope in what seems to be a hopeless situation. Bilbo takes the necessary action and we've talked before about, about that specific relationship, that luck is not Bilbo's greatest gift, or at least luck in itself is not Bilbo's greatest gift. Bilbo is lucky, but then takes action to maximize that luck. He takes the opportunities that are presented to him. And here, arguably, we can see that same kind of pattern. He has a moment of luck, an, an, an unearned, uh, up, uh, uh, excuse me, an unearned upswelling, uh, upwelling, uprising, I don't know, an uprising of hope in that moment. And then he takes action. Then he, he moves forward. And that carries us through the rest of the chapter. Both of these things, I think, are equally possible. Both of these things are, I think, equally likely. And of course, we can't whistle past this too swiftly without invoking catastrophe. We have to consider the possibility that this is simply a contrivance, that here in this dark moment, when all hope seems lost, when the dwarves are trapped, Bilbo's sudden emergence of hope his sudden emergence of leadership could almost be considered eucatastrophic. That is to say that it is a calamity, that it is a catastrophe, but it has a positive outcome. Yeah. Jackie says here in the YouTube chat, hope always seems to be the greatest gift in Tolkien's world. I completely agree, which is one of the reasons that I uh, respond so fully and so directly to Tolkien myself. Yes. And Leslie Skipa asks, we don't really know how dragon, how dragon sickness spreads, do we? Does it come from the presence of the dragon or the hoarded treasure? Well, I think, I think we are led to believe that it is the latter. I think that there are subtle clues and suggestions through the, uh, through the various perspectives that we get on Erebor and on the hoard of treasure contained therein, that the hoard itself created a kind of dragon sickness in the dwarves, particularly, of course, in Thror. Um, at that point, the dragon came. At that point, in effect, the dragon was summoned. As I said, we'll have a little more opportunity to talk about dragon sickness as we move forward, yes. But that doesn't, excuse, that doesn't excuse or exclude the possibility that Bilbo has, in some sense, fallen under the sway of Smaug, that he has somehow fallen under the, the magical influence of the dragon. Certainly, as we discussed last time, there are indications in Bilbo's actions and certainly in his dialogue that he is not holy himself as he is posturing as he is bantering with smaug he seems to take on some aspect of smaug himself and that's not common for bilbo that's not something that we've seen before from bilbo yes good um Yes, Death or Glory Toad on Twitter says, they're at their final destination and there is no going back, unlike all the other passages they have traveled. Absolutely, yes. And Victoria says, I mean, if I expected a dragon to come back and kill me at any moment, I might not feel comfortable in my old home either. That is a very fair point, Victoria. Yes, I don't think we can blame the dwarves for feeling uncomfortable here. We, we just must note that in the chapter entitled Not at Home, they are not yet at home. Good, good. Um, let me see here. Good. Oh, we're talking about the uh, we're talking about the movie. Um, we're talking about the movie adaptation here. Yes, yes, yes. Kate says perhaps the dragon leaves some residue on the horde, causing dragon sickness. Again, th that is entirely possible. But 
I, I think back to the, the Misty Mountains Cold Song, right at the beginning of the book, where we get this description of the halls of Erebor. We get the, the, the lavish and loving descriptions of the, the mar remarkable jewels and works of art created by the dwarves. And then we get the suggestion that the dwarves become insular, that they retreat from the world around them, that they turn inward. And that speaks to a jealousy that speaks to uh, a desire to hoard these things for themselves and to no longer share them that could well be the beginning or, or the first the first evidence the first symptom of dragon sickness that's a strong possibility that's certainly i think how i am personally inclined to read it but yes it is possible that, that simply the accumulation of golden treasure calls the dragon down and the dragon himself spreads the dragon sickness yes <clears throat> Excuse me. That I think is my preferred interpretation of the phrase dragon sickness. It is the sickness of dragons, not a sickness caused by dragons. But certainly, yes, it, it's not completely definitive in that regard. Yeah, good. Yes, and of course, um, Damn Dirty Gamer says it's, it's possible it's the Horde or more specifically the ring somewhere in it. This is vital, of course, because if in some sense Bilbo is slipping under the influence of Smaug in the last chapter and we're seeing the the resolution of that, the restoration of Bilbo's uh, own innate and, 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 and fundamental self in this moment, it does feel a little like the ring for those of us who have read The Lord of the Rings. This, this malign and corruptive influence does feel somewhat familiar and is in its broadest pattern completely consistent with the influence of evil in, in Tolkien's secondary creation, in Tolkien's Middle Earth, throughout the Silmarillion and many, many other stories, we will see the influence of evil to be corruptive. Here we are, beneath the Lonely Mountain, amidst the desolation of Smaug. This is a land that has been destroyed. This is a land that has been corrupted. And we can talk exactly about the mechanics underlying that in, in just a little while. We also saw Mirkwood, of course, which has been, a, which is a land corrupted by evil. Evil is insidious evil changes and transforms and that's difficult yes good good uh, victoria says on twitter but isn't it just simple powerful greed though greed twists personalities and hordes draw dragons because they're also greedy absolutely a valid interpretation of uh, of dragon sickness there yes or at least hmm I would say that dragon sickness is not solely greed dragon sickness itself is the the transformation that occurs within oneself as a consequence of greed, whether that comes from the horde or comes from the dragon or comes from some other source that is completely coincidental, dragon sickness itself speaks to that, that transformation, speaks to that withdrawal from community, that, that, that reclusiveness, that insularism, I'm sorry, um, which, which, turns those suffering from dragon sickness against their companions and compatriots and neighbors, certainly too. Yeah, yeah. James says, highlighting C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where Eustace becomes a dragon by giving into the greed that treasure brings, a.k.a. the treasure brings out the inner dragon or dragon sickness. I hadn't thought of that, James, but that is actually a great pull. Excellent. Yes, good. Uh, Fina says, I just ordered the Silmarillion at 3.30 a.m. I decided that the money that the month is over enough to throw out some money to fill my educational gaps. Woohoo. I have some good news. Uh, because of the success of There and Back Again, I will be adding some uh, probably Patreon-exclusive special lectures looking at parts of the Silmarillion. I already have plans for those. Um, you can probably find out more within the next couple of weeks over at pointnorthmedia.com, assuming that website 
ever comes back. Right now, it is down, which is a problem, I admit, when you're trying to launch a new company and start a new business. But I am assured by the technical gremlins who run such things that it will be back very, very soon. I will make some kind of announcement about a few special lectures, a few special uh, special one-shot companion pieces for there and back again. If you miss out on those, you won't miss anything from the story itself. You'll still be able to enjoy The Hobbit. You'll still be able to enjoy Lord of the Rings. But there will be some additional background detail there, too. Excellent. Um, is this before or after Alistair returns to DMP, asks Dry Heaving Llamas. DMP, in this case, dear Mr. Potter, I will be doing the third Harry Potter book, The Prisoner of Azkaban, sometime soon. Um, it will probably, honestly, honestly, it will probably be after my upcoming American Gods seminar, which starts week after next. I'm going to discuss the entirety of the American Gods novel and then every episode of the Stars TV show, too. I'm really excited to talk about American Gods. Probably right after that is done, we will launch uh, the third season of Dear Mr. Potter and talk about Prisoner of Azkaban. That will be sometime around the middle of June, end of June, something like that. So I will have a... Uh, an actual date and a schedule prepared for that in the near future. Yes, good. And I should say too, because I didn't mention it at the beginning for some reason, if you are joining me for There and Back Again and you don't normally, you know, hang around pointnorthmedia.com or hang around my Twitter feed, you may have missed a couple of announcements. In the last two days, I have produced two one-shot lectures which are available to everyone over on the Patreon page. Though you have to go to the Patreon page to see them, you can get them even if you don't support me via Patreon. You will find there a one-shot lecture, a... I don't know, 90-minute lecture, something like that, on the 1988 fantasy classic Willow. That was a really great discussion. And then just last night, I did another 90-minute lecture on Scott Pilgrim versus the World, the Edgar Wright 2010 movie adaptation of Brian Lee O'Malley's graphic novel series. You can find both of those one-shots over on patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. And I should also say, for those of you who are sticking around, for those of you who enjoy this kind of live conversational environment, tomorrow afternoon, I will have the weekly Point North live stream. If you have questions, if you have thoughts, if you have subjects you'd like to discuss, you can come and hang out with me and we'll just, we'll just chat for an hour. That's going to be how that works. There's no great structure. There's no great plan. I'm just going to take listener questions and, and hang out with you guys for a bit. And then on Saturday, as if this week wasn't busy enough, on Saturday... This coming Saturday, which is the first, second, first. Good. It's April 1st. This is not an April Fool's joke. But on Saturday, April 1st, I will be releasing the long-awaited discussion of Rogue One, a Star Wars story, as a part of the Story in Star Wars podcast. I cannot wait. I have been working very, very hard on this lecture. Uh, that's not going to be a live broadcast. That's a pre-prepared, pre-recorded lecture. But I have some thoughts about Rogue One, you guys. I really like that movie and I have a lot to say. So if you're interested at all in Star Wars, you can find that on Saturday over at Point North Media. The website should be back up by then. That, I think, will do this weird intermission here as I just discuss other plans for Point North Media. Good. Um, excellent. James says, was just going to ask about Rogue One. It is coming this week. Excellent. Yes. All right. All right. Um, good. Sarah Thomas says, I talked my husband into American Gods. He's read a total of three non-sport-related books since I've known him. Yay. I'm sure, I'm sure that he will love American Gods. American Gods is a challenging text, certainly, but it is broad and it is magnificent and it is weighty and it is thoughtful. And of course, because it's Neil Gaiman, it is also sharp and insightful and incisive. That book can wound you if you are not careful. Yeah, good. 
Robert Hickok, Robert Hickok, excuse me, says, just finished glutting on American Gods. What a book. Yeah. Good. Excellent. All right. Let's get back to The Hobbit and stop talking about American Gods and Rogue One for, hey, just a little while, I guess, and move on to, to Bilbo's greatest, arguably, and last, certainly, act of burglary. Bilbo finds the Arkenstone. They saw the little dark shape of the hobbit start across the floor, holding his tiny light aloft. Every now and again, while he was still near enough, they caught a glint and a tinkle as he stumbled on some golden thing. The light grew smaller as he wandered away into the vast hall. Then it began to rise, dancing into the air. Bilbo was climbing the great mound of treasure. Soon he stood upon the top and still went on. Then they saw him halt and stoop for a moment, but they did not know the reason. It was the Arkenstone, the heart of the mountain. So Bilbo guessed from Thorne's description, but indeed there could not be two such gems, even, even in so marvelous a hoard, even in all the world. Ever as he climbed, the same white gleam had shone before him and drawn his feet towards it. Slowly it grew to a little globe of pallid light. Now as he came near, it was tinged with a flickering sparkle of many colors at the surface, reflected and splintered from the wavering light of his torch. At last he looked down upon it, and he caught his breath. The great jewel shone before his feet of its own inner light, and yet, cut and fashioned by the dwarves, who had dug it from the heart of the mountain long ago, it took all light that fell upon it and changed it into ten thousand sparks of white radiance, shot with glints of the rainbow. Suddenly Bilbo's arm went towards it, drawn by its enchantment. His small hand would not close about it, for it was a large and heavy jam, but he lifted it, shut his eyes, and put it in his deepest pocket. Now, one of the things that jumps out at you, I think, in this passage is the influence of the Arkenstone itself. Excuse me. Um, three times here, we get this odd sense that, that Bilbo is not acting entirely of his own free will as he discovers the Arkenstone. First of all, ever as he climbed, the same white gleam had shown before him and drawn his feet towards it. He is being guided. He is not the, the active participant in this process. He is along for the ride at this point. Then in that last paragraph, suddenly Bilbo's arm went toward it, drawn by its enchantment. And then finally, that last sentence, he lifted it, shut his eyes, and put it in his deepest pocket. Shutting his eyes here I think indicates the fact that this is not entirely a conscious action. This is not entirely something that he wants to do, but it is something that he is drawn to do nonetheless. Of course, as a few people are calling out here, uh, the Arkenstone is pretty close to being a Silmaril. It is a glowing jewel. The, the Silmarils, of course, the glowing gems that give the Silmarillion its name. The Arkenstone is not a Silmaril. The Arkenstone is a very different object, though. As I think I've mentioned before, when Tolkien translated parts of the Silmarillion into Anglo-Saxon, the word that he used for the Silmaril was Earkenstana, which means literally a holy stone. So the Arkenstone and the Silmarils do share a similar creative root, I suppose, a similar creative foundation, but they are not the same thing at all. But the exact nature of the Arkenstone is a little deceptive. It is a little curious. 
We have been talking since literally the beginning of the book about the great artifice of the dwarves, about their great creative ability. They can create swords and create armor. They can create jewelry. They can capture light and hide it away within gems deep beneath the earth. The Arkenstone, though, crucially, is not entirely of dwarven make. It is not entirely of dwarven artifice. It is, in part at least, a natural phenomenon. It was discovered and then refined rather than being created outright. And we can wonder about the influence of the Arkenstone. We can wonder about what, is in a, uh, what we might refer to in a sense as the, the power or the magic of the Arkenstone, because it certainly seems to have a, an influence over the dwarves, as we'll see as we move toward the end of the book, an influence over the dwarves that is more than strictly political. It is more, this is not just a, a, a bauble. This is not a trinket. This is not an indicator of, of rank or authority. This is something slightly different. It is connected to the mountain. It is literally the heart of the mountain. It's also curious that the, the Arkenstone is possessed of this awareness, possessed of this influence, that Bilbo is pulled toward it. And I guess even there, I am begging the question, is the Arkenstone possessed of an influence over Bilbo? Or is there some other force that is guiding Bilbo? Certainly, we might attribute, if you have read ahead to the end of the novel, we might attribute Bilbo's taking of the Arkenstone here, this greatest act of burglary, as... Well, we might attribute it to, to that same luck, that same eucatastrophic impulse that we've seen throughout. And this even takes us all the way back to the very beginning of the book. In the last chapter, Smaug was talking to Bilbo about the implausibility, the infeasibility of the dwarves' plan. What are they going to do? Take a burglar to the Lonely Mountain and send him down to steal a cup at a time, a few coins at a time? He is step-by-step step going to steal the entire horde and then carry it out, somehow get it across the great desolation of Smaug back to some civilized land where they can sell it? That doesn't seem at all possible. It doesn't seem at all plausible. As I said last week, this story, this, this adventure, this quest has been described as a treasure hunt from the beginning. And we're about to see the, the point of inflection that will change everything in that regard. But then we remember Gandalf right there in the first chapter. And there is the hint that Gandalf has gone looking for a champion, for a hero, for a dragon slayer to accompany the dwarves on their quest. And failing to find such a figure, he hires instead a burglar. That makes little to no sense. Except that it is Bilbo's burglary, it is Bilbo's theft of the Arkenstone, his taking of the Arkenstone, that ultimately resolves the entire plot, that ultimately avoids a stark and vile catastrophe, a stark and vile catastrophe which would be bad enough in the pages of The Hobbit, but which, if you look ahead to The Lord of the Rings, would have been even more catastrophic. It would have been a disaster had Bilbo not taken the Arkenstone when he did, and then later not done with it what he will do with it, as we will discuss next week. So it is possible that the force that is guiding Bilbo's steps here, the force that is extending Bilbo's hand, the force that compels him to close his eyes before he puts it in his pocket, that this is the eucatastrophic force, that this is luck, that this is good fortune, that this is whatever impulse drives that eucatastrophe, that this is perhaps the intercession of of either a theological or cosmological grace, that this is either the intercession of, of 
the creator of God of, of Iluvatar, I suppose. Or this, <clears throat> excuse me, if you believe instead, in, in, instead of a, a theological framework, you're looking at more of a, a, a structuralist framework, then this could simply be the manifestation of that, that universal impulse toward order. Tolkien, of course, would have cleaved toward the former rather than the latter, but we can make some allowances, and there's certainly space within the text of The Hobbit for some speculation in that regard. So the Arkenstone itself represents the mountain. It represents Erebor. It is, in a very powerful sense, the home to which the dwarves have returned. And Bilbo has taken it. That cannot be overlooked. Yes. Princess Ostrich says, maybe it is the spirit of the mountain, which is the home of the dwarves, as they were basically born in those mountains. That is why it is the token of the king of Erebor. Certainly there does seem to be a connection between between the Arkenstone and, hmm, and dwarven culture, the, the kingdom, certainly. We will see the Arkenstone being used as a symbol of the right to rule, though, of course, the dwarven kingdom existed before the Arkenstone was discovered. The Arkenstone was discovered by the dwarves of Erebor. So it's difficult to see how that could have been foundational, but certainly it could have taken on an importance. It could have taken on a significance. And if it is in some thematic, symbolic sense, the heart of the mountain, it isn't just possible that the Arkenstone unifies dwarven culture here in the kingdom of Erebor. It may also be the case that it is, in part or in whole, the Arkenstone, the loss of the Arkenstone, that is responsible for the desolation around the Lonely Mountain. The desolation of Smaug may, in fact, be the desolation of the lost Arkenstone. I find that possibility completely fascinating, too. Yes. Um, Willis says, is there something about nature to be found in the fact that the ultimate target of the dwarves' greed is representative of such a natural thing? Beautifully asked. Yes, yes, I think that's very significant. That was why I, I, I emphasized here that for all the dwarves' great artifice, the Arkenstone was a found thing. Now, they refined it, they, they cut it, they, they, they improved its great beauty, but whatever magic it had presumably was already present. Whatever, whatever symbolic weight it had was presumably already present. It is not a created thing in the traditional sense. In that sense, it is actually unlike the rings of power or, or, or any of the rings, in fact. It is, it is unlike some of the other artifacts that we have seen exert a similar influence if you are inclined to believe that it is the Arkenstone that is drawing Bilbo to it and not... The, the tide of good fortune, not, not the wind of you catastrophe carrying Bilbo forward. Yes. Good. Um, <clears throat> David asks, why is Thorin not drawn to it, but Bilbo is? Well, Thorin, of course, at this point has not yet descended. The dwarves are looking down at Bilbo, exploring the treasure. Bilbo is the first one in there. So it is possible that, that Thorin will be, I mean, Thorin is drawn to it in the sense that he wants to possess it, that he wants to claim it. It will become an object of obsession for him, but he's not physically drawn to it in the way that Bilbo is. Now, that may simply be a question of proximity, it may simply be a question of eucatastrophe, it may simply be a question of luck, or the specific impulse of the Arkenstone itself. Yes. Good. Good. Faceting, says Leslie Skipa. I think they call it faceting when you carve a gem. Faceting, I think, is exactly the word. Yes, yes. Good. Um... And Robert says maybe the Arkenstone was the confirmation of dwarven rule in Erebor. Yes, yeah, I think that's that's certainly a, a, a valid and compelling uh, interpretation. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, yeah, good. 
Uh, Kate says on Twitter, newsflash, all the gold and jewels were natural, then cut and or refined. That is absolutely true, of course, Kate. But the gold and the jewels that we have described are not singular in the way the Arkenstone is singular. The gold and the jewels that the dwarves dig from beneath the mountain and then transform into objects of beauty are resources. They are themselves not singular. The Arkenstone is a single discovered thing, which possesses a clearly magical power too. Yeah. Good. Good. Okay. Um, yes. Um, I'm scrolling back to make sure that I didn't miss anything. And the answer is that I have missed a great many things. Good. Um, yes. All right. Let's, uh, I- I'm sure there are questions. If you guys have questions, you can get in touch with me after the fact. You can email pointnorthmedia at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter using the hashtag T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N. Tab again over on Twitter. Good. Um, Yes. Well, Becca's asking here, does the Arkenstone have desires like the ring does? Possibly. Possibly. That is an interpretation. Um, though, of course, even within The Hobbit, well, it's, it's not at all clear. The ring may well have desires. You know, it, it may well have, I guess it's the combination of desire and influence that we're really talking about. The ring has desires, but it doesn't necessarily have in the pages of The Hobbit the means of, of achieving those desires. The Arkenstone may be very similar. It may be, um, may be possessed of that same kind of, of, of agency. It's difficult to be sure, yeah. Certainly the, the function of the Arkenstone in the narrative is at least clear, even if the, the, the precise nature of the Arkenstone is somewhat more ambiguous. Good. Uh, and James asks, does the Arkenstone strike anyone as similar to the Palantiri in its influential nature and ability to corrupt? That's a really interesting pull, James. Um, I mean, potentially, at least, though there isn't the sense, the Palantiri themselves do not corrupt. Malign influence channeled through the Palantiri will corrupt. The Arkenstone doesn't seem to have a malign influence channeled through it unless... I mean, maybe there's a way of looking at the Arkenstone that speaks to the dragon sickness. Maybe the Arkenstone itself is the, the anchor for the dragon sickness. Possibly. Yeah. Good. Good. As Princess Ostrich says, but weren't the Palantiri corrupted by Sauron? Yes. Yes. Good. We know very little about the Arkenstone, says Jackie. And on that note, I think we probably said enough about the Arkenstone. Let's talk instead a little about Bilbo. This slide follows on precisely from the end of the last slide. And is Bilbo reflecting on his actions here? Now I am a burglar indeed, thought he. But I suppose I must tell the dwarves about it sometime. They did say I could pick and choose my own share, and I think I would choose this if they took all the rest. All the same, he had an uncomfortable feeling about the picking and... Excuse me, he had an uncomfortable feeling that the picking and choosing had not really been meant to include this marvellous jam, and that trouble would yet come of it. And of course, Bilbo is entirely right. And when we make comparisons between the Arkenstone in the pages of The Hobbit and the ring in the pages of The Lord of the Rings, this is one piece of evidence that, that strongly suggests a connection between the two. When we get to The Lord of the Rings, we will see people under the influence of the ring making all kinds of excuses. They will absolutely narrativize their own experience, their own desire for the ring. The ring itself will convince them that wanting the ring is the good and noble thing to do. Here we seem to see something very similar. We seem to see a, a, a similar kind of connection between the Arkenstone and, uh, and Bilbo here, yes. And yet, as Nikki says, he still takes it. Was this by design? Absolutely. That is, that is a legitimate interpretation and is, I have to say, 
is the interpretation that I lean toward myself. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm presenting a lot of possibilities for you, I suppose, in, in the context of this uh, session tonight. But for me, the Arkenstone is simply a, a symbol of the rule of Erebor, that it is mostly representative. It is mostly symbolic, I think. Clearly, it does have some magic associated with it. And I think that the unity of that, that discovered natural magical artifact and then the craft of the dwarves to, to improve that, that artifact, I like that, that harmony and that synthesis very much. But for me, Bilbo is guided not by the Arkenstone, but by whatever luck, if luck you call it, by whatever cosmic or divine influence is, is propelling these events forward. Whatever, whatever force is responsible for the prophecy of the thrush's knock, whatever prophecy is responsible for the falling of Smaug, for the songs that we heard in Lake Town. That force is clear and is present throughout the story. We've seen this happen again and again and again. That the terrible events lead to great outcomes, lead to, to impossibly great, unexpectedly great outcomes. This seems to me to be something of a very similar sort. So for me, this is the herald, if you like, of eucatastrophe. And this may be the moment where Bilbo feels most powerfully that compulsion toward action. He is specifically guided to the Arkenstone by something. I don't believe that it is the Arkenstone that guides him, and that certainly lets us off the hook for why Thorin can't sense the specific location of the Arkenstone later in the story. For me, he is guided by luck. He is guided by this, this force of destiny or prophecy or whatever it is. Yeah, good. Sabrina says, when Bilbo says, now I am a burglar indeed, does he mean stealing from the dragon or from the dwarves? Sabrina, that is an excellent, uh, an excellent call out there. He means, specifically, stealing from the dragon. This is still the dragon's hoard, and he is taking his share of the dragon's hoard to which he is entitled. But there is, of course, an irony in those words. There is, of course, an ambiguity in those words. Now I am a burglar indeed. This is not, at this point, a treasure hunt. This is not, at this point, a recovery mission. Now he really is stealing from the dwarves. He knows in his heart that his 14th share does not include this marvelous gem. He knew, he knew that it wouldn't, and yet this is the piece that he wants. So yes, in a sense, you, you are calling out there, I think, a deliberate irony in, in his dialogue. Good. Good. All right. As far as they know, says Leslie Skipper, Smaug is still alive. Yes, that, that's certainly true, too. We are, we are about to get to that. Yes. Good. Okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Let's take a look, then at the Horde itself, because following Bilbo's discovery of the Arkenstone, the dwarves descend into the Great Chamber and they begin, well, they begin to go through the goods, is what they do. Feely and Keely were almost in merry mood, and finding still hanging their many golden harps strung with silver, they took them and struck them, and being magical, and also untouched by the dragon who had small interest in music, they were still in tune. The dark hall was filled with a melody that had long been silent, but most of the dwarves were more practical. They gathered gems and stuffed their pockets and let what they could not carry fall back through their fingers with a sigh. Thorin was not least among these, but always he searched from side to side for something which he could not find. It was the Arkenstone, but he spoke of it yet to no one. Now the dwarves took down mail and weapons from the walls and armed themselves. Royal indeed did Thorin look, clad in a coat of gold-plated rings with a silver-hafted axe and a belt crusted with scarlet stones. Mr. Baggins, he cried, here is the first payment of your reward. Cast off your old coat 
and put on this. With that, he put on Bilbo a small coat of mail wrought for some young elf prince long ago. It was of silver steel, which the elves call mithril. And with it went a belt of pearls and crystals, a light helm of figured leather strengthened beneath with hoops of steel and studded about the brim with white gems was set upon the hobbit's head. The shift here is an absolutely fascinating one. On the one hand, this is, um, this is the part where uh, the dwarves return home. This is the part where the dwarves take possession once again of the, the, the halls of the Dwarven King beneath the Lonely Mountain. But in another sense, we are seeing them inhabit a facsimile of that home. Feely and Killy striking up the music is powerful, of course, but also somewhat insubstantial. The dwarves go forth and collect gems. They, they stuff their pockets, and much good may it do them. Thorin is looking for the Arkenstone, but he takes time to dress himself in magnificent armor and to wield a magnificent blade. And we are feeling now as though, well, hey, Smaug can return, and we stand a fighting chance. These dwarves, these magnificent dwarves, armed now in the weapon, with the weapons of their forebears, maybe they stand a chance against Smaug. But, of course, they don't. Because these are the weapons. This is the armor that was worn by the dwarves that were, dis that were killed, that were outright murdered by Smaug when he descended upon the Lonely Mountain in the first place. This is hollow. This is meaningless. And then we get the awarding to Bilbo of his mithril coat, which will return in The Lord of the Rings. He puts it on. It is dramatic. It is magnificent. Let's actually take a look at the very next slide, which, which follows on directly from that. I feel magnificent, he thought, but I expect I look rather absurd. How they would laugh on the hill at home. Still, I wish there was a looking glass handy. All the same, Mr. Baggins kept his head more clear of the bewitchment of the horde than the dwarves did. Long before the dwarves were tired of examining the treasures, he became weary of it and sat down on the floor and he began to wonder nervously what the end of it all would be. I would give a good many of these precious goblets, he thought, for a drink of something cheering out of one of Bjorn's wooden bowls. Throughout the, um, throughout the story so far, throughout our discussion of the, uh, of the Hobbit, we've been talking about Bilbo's Took side and his Baggins side. We've been looking at the ways in which those two sides interact, the ways in which a unity between those two polar opposite sides speaks to Bilbo's essential self, that, that he is neither Took nor Baggins, but both. And it is in the bothness of Took and Baggins that Bilbo gains his greatest power. That is what makes Bilbo unique. That is what makes Bilbo, arguably, a hero. Here we see, I think, a perfect representation of that, a perfect manifestation of that. The Tukish impulse to don this miraculous armor, the, the Tukish impulse to admire himself and to feel indeed magnificent is thwarted, is, is turned, is balanced by the Baggins-ish impulse to, well, to be self-aware, to be mindful, and of course, to sacrifice these precious goblets for a drink of something cheering. That is absolutely a Baggins-ish impulse. And we must note, too, the word there that Bilbo uses, magnificent, is a fascinating word. On the one hand, we might well imagine the fabulous Belladonna, Belladonna Took using the word magnificent. 
I have a little more trouble imagining Bungo Baggins using the word magnificent, or at least feeling magnificent himself. We should also remember the last chapter, where Bilbo commented upon Smaug's magnificent breastplate of jewels and gems, and here he is now himself clad in a, clad in a similar outfit. Here he is bedecked with, with, with silver and with gems and with, with jewels. And that's, that's an interesting point of comparison, particularly because we have this line here at the beginning of the second paragraph on the slide in front of you. All the same, Mr. Baggins kept his head more clear of the bewitchment of the horde than the dwarves did. Now, we might be talking about something like dragon sickness here, or we simply may be acknowledging the, the, the connection that dwarves have with gems and jewels and gold and, and, and riches of all sorts, and perhaps more specifically, gems and jewels and gold and riches created by dwarves, created by their, their ancestors, their forebears here in Erebor. It is possible either way, I think. The, the, whatever it is, we're assured that Bilbo is less affected by it than the dwarves are. And that seems to be, as he immediately turns his thoughts to something cheering from one of one of Bjorn's wooden cups, we immediately are, are cued, I think, to see this as a part of Bilbo's Baggins-ish impulse. That because he is Bilbo Baggins of the Shire, he is less moved and stirred and, and compelled by this kind of opulence, by this kind of grandeur, by this kind of decadence. His needs really are few. His tastes really are pretty simple. He doesn't need gold and gems. All he needs is bacon and the kettle beginning to whistle back home. And again, at this point, we are reminded powerfully that Bilbo is now as far from that home as he will ever be. This is the, the furthest reach of Bilbo's adventure here. Yeah. Yeah. Joshroom says, <clears throat> excuse me, Joshroom says, it would have been so easy to just describe the dwarves as having weapons, but it is not till this point after the biggest threat of their journey is defeated, that they arm themselves. Absolutely fair point. Yes, with the exception of uh, Thorin's rediscovered elven blade, it doesn't seem at all clear that the dwarves have weapons of any kind. Yeah, good. Yes. Chesley says Bilbo just wants to have his tea and drink it. Yes. <laughs> good. All right. Um, good. Yes, Jackie says, I love that Bilbo recognizes how ridiculous he'd look at home, but is enjoying his time in his fantastic raiment anyway. Yes, that is the the the, the Took and Baggins impulse. Uh, almost, almost unified, almost settled, almost, almost brought into focus within him. Here now, he is both Took and Baggins. He can enjoy it. He can sincerely enjoy it. Yes, back home, they might think he looks ridiculous, but he really wants a looking glass. He feels magnificent. That's not nothing. That's That's extraordinarily powerful and sometimes you guys you just have to feel magnificent yes good all right uh let's take a look at the next slide then here <clears throat> excuse me um as we move on onward and outward from the chambers beneath the lonely mountain to well really a search for information about smaug Dear me, grumbled the hobbit, more walking and more climbing without breakfast. I wonder how many breakfasts and other meals we have missed inside that nasty, clockless, timeless hole. As a matter of fact, two nights and the day between had gone by, and not altogether without food, since the dragon smashed the magic door. But Bilbo had quite lost count, and it might have been one night or a week of nights for all he could tell. 
Come, come, said Thorin, laughing. His spirits had begun to rise again, and he rattled the precious stones in his pockets. Don't call my palace a nasty hole. You wait till it's been cleaned and redecorated. That won't be till Smaug's dead, said Bilbo glumly. In the meanwhile, where is he? I would give a good breakfast to know. I hope he is not up on the mountain looking down at us. That idea disturbed the dwarves mightily, and they quickly decided that Bilbo and Balin were right. This is one of those moments when we see, I think, the transition, the, the incipient transition here within the pages of The Hobbit. We are so close to this major turning point. The story is about to turn into something else. But Bilbo is the first to recognize that in order for this quest to be successful, in order even merely for the dwarves to accomplish what they set out to accomplish, that, that specific goal, never mind greater and grander and more lasting and enduring goals, but even accomplishing that specific goal is dependent on the death of the dragon. Someone, somewhere, at some point, has to kill Smaug. And that's, well, not at all easy, of course. Let's move into chapter 14 here. Um, good. <laughs> Willis says here in the YouTube chat, Arab or redecoration coming soon to HGTV. You really need the Property Brothers, I think, for uh, for a good Erebor renovation. Yes. <laughs> oh, and Nikki's pulling out the uh, an Indiana Jones reference, which I actually really like from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Bad guy drinks from bejeweled goblet and dies. Good guy drinks from a wooden goblet and lives. Yes, certainly. I guess we didn't really talk about Bilbo's specific reference to Bayorn. He's not looking back to the hill at this point. He's not looking back to his own kitchen and the kettle beginning to sing. Instead, he's looking back to Beorn, who, as we discussed at the time, is a really fascinating synthesis of the West and the Wild. Beorn is civil to a point, but he is also unavoidably wild. And that contrast, that, that harsh unity, in a sense, does speak, I think, to Bilbo's own contrast, Bilbo's own harsh unity, the, the unity of Took and Baggins. It is interesting, I think, that in that moment, Bilbo doesn't look home, but looks back to Beorn. I find that really interesting. Yeah, good. <laughs> Chesley says, oh, Bilbo, always there to remind them that a fire-breathing dragon um, could incinerate them at any time, just when they've forgotten about Smaug. Yes. And Joshim's clarifies here, yes, in Mirkwood, it clarifies that they have a few pocket knives, but even Thorin fights the trolls with a stick on fire before he gets Orchrist. Yes, the dwarves show up to Bilbo's place for the unexpected party with musical instruments, not with weapons. There is no suggestion that the, the, the dwarves have weapons beyond pocket knives until this moment. Yeah, good. And Clockless, Robert's calling that out. Clockless, anachronism again. Yes, yes. Though, like the first anachronism, it is entirely possible that this is uh, an inclusion of of a subsequent uh, adapter of the story rather than an original detail of Bilbo's text. But yes, yes. Good. All right. Um, let's move on then to chapter 14 and take a look at the tonal shift right here at the beginning of chapter 14. Now, if you wish, like the dwarves, to hear news of Smaug, you must go back again to the evening when he smashed the door and flew off in rage two days before. The men of the lake town Esgaroth were mostly indoors, for the breeze was from the black east and chill, but a few were walking on the quays and watching, as they were fond of doing, the stars shine out from the smooth patches of the lake as they opened in the sky. From their town, the lonely mountain was mostly screened by the low hills at the far end of the lake, 
through a, uh, through a gap in which the river running came down from the north. Only its high peak could be seen in clear weather, and they looked seldom at it, for it was ominous and drear even in the light of morning. Now it was lost and gone, blotted in the dark. Suddenly it flickered back to view. A brief glow touched it and faded. So we've talked a few times in our exploration of The Hobbit about these moments of narrative intrusion, where the narrator himself intrudes upon the story to remind us effectively that this is a story, to say, hey, 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 remember how this is a fantasy novel that you're reading and not, you know, an account of some genuine or 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 uh, historical adventure, not simply that. Anyway, this is another one of those transitions. Here the narrator takes us by the hand and leads us away from the Lonely Mountain, away from Bilbo to Esgaroth. And we get this cinematic intro here as the good people of Esgaroth, the good people of Lake Town, are looking up at the Lonely Mountain. They see it flicker and flare into light and then fade. This is heralding the the descent of Smaug upon Lake Town. Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, let's take a look then at Smaug's attack. Roaring, he swept back over the town. A hail of dark arrows leapt up and snapped and rattled on his scales and jewels, and their shafts fell back, kindled by his breath, burning and hissing into the lake. No fireworks you ever imagined equaled the sights that night. At the twanging of the bows and the shrilling of the trumpets, the dragon's wrath blazed to its height till he was blind and mad with it. No one had dared to give battle to him for many an age, nor would they have dared now if it had not been for the grim-voiced man. Bard was his name, who ran to and fro cheering on the archers and urging the master to order them to fight to the last arrow. Fire leapt from the dragon's jaws. He circled for a while, high in the air above them, lighting all the lake. The trees by the shores shone like copper and like blood, with leaping shadows of dense black at their feet. Then down he swooped, straight through the arrow storm, reckless in his rage, taking no heed to turn his scaly sides towards his foes, seeking only to set their town ablaze. Fire leapt from thatched roofs and wooden beam ends as he hurtled down and passed and round again, though all had been drenched with water before he came. Once more water was flung by a hundred hands wherever a spark appeared. Back swirled the dragon. A sweep of his tail and the roof of the great house crumbled and smashed down. Flames unquenchable sprang high into the night. Another swoop and another and another house and then another sprang afire and fell. And still no arrow hindered Smaug or hurt him more than a fly from the marshes. This is beautifully written, of course. It is, uh, it is just stunning. Um, and we're already talking here in the YouTube chat about Bard. Yes. Yes. Um, let's see. Yes. We're asking whether Girion and Bard are of Numenor. I do not believe that that is the case, but yeah. Okay. Um, Yes, okay. Let's talk about Bard first then, because here he appears. He's been on a couple of previous pages that we haven't pulled. Um, he is the grim-voiced man. He is the the, the grim-voiced herald of doom here in Esgaroth. Here he gets his name, and in the subsequent pages we'll get a better sense of who he is. Bard the Bowman is our dragon slayer. Bard the Bowman is the man who will kill Smaug. And he has not been mentioned in the book until this chapter, until basically this very moment. What's interesting is that in Tolkien's original conception of The Hobbit, as 
difficult as this may be to believe, Bilbo was going to kill Smaug while still beneath the Lonely Mountain. He was going to go into Smaug's chamber. There was going to be some kind of confrontation. Bilbo was going to stab Smaug with Sting. He was going to plunge Sting all the way into the gap in Smaug's armor and then leap into a giant golden cup or, or chalice in order to escape the flood of Smaug's blood. He would then be carried out of the Lonely Mountain on this this torrent of blood, which is, you know, one way that you can go. Tolkien decided that that wasn't the case. That wasn't how the story was going to unfold. He wanted something a little more mythic. He wanted, I think, in part, another returning king story, in part to mirror Thorin, and in part because, well, Middle-earth is the kind of place that runs on Return of the King stories. So instead, he introduces Bard at this point. As I said, Bard previously unmentioned, certainly previously unmentioned by name. Bard then steps up that he is the heir of Geryon. He is the the rightful ruler, in a sense, of Dale, and thus, arguably, Esgaroth too. And Bard steps up and with his uh, his, his black arrow slays the dragon. Let's take a look at that chapter here too. But there was still a company of archers that held their ground among the burning houses. Their captain was Bard, grim-voiced and grim-faced, whose friends had accused him of prophesying floods and poisoned fish, though they knew his worth and courage. He was a descendant in long line of Girion, Lord of Dale, whose wife and child had escaped down the running river from the ruin long ago. Now he shot with a great yew bow, till all his arrows but one were spent. The flames were near him. His companions were leaving him. He bent his bow for the last time. Suddenly, out of the dark, something fluttered on his shoulder. He started, but it was only an old thrush. Unafraid, it perched by his ear and brought him news. Marveling, he found he could understand its tongue, for he was of the race of Dale. Wait, wait, it said to him. The moon is rising. Look for the hollow of the left breast as he flies and turns above you. And while Bard paused in wonder, it told him of tidings up in the mountain and of all that it had heard. Then Bard drew his bowstring to his ear. The dragon was circling back, flying low, and as he came, the moon rose above the eastern shore and silvered his great wings. Arrow, said the bowman. Black arrow, I have saved you to the last. You have never failed me, and always I have recovered you. I had you from my father, and he from of old. If ever you came from the forges of the true king under the mountain, go now and speed well. pretty great you guys it's a a pretty great chapter yes yes good Uh, we're talking a little here on twitter about how prepared or unprepared the people of esgaroth were or are they do went the buildings um in order to try and stave off uh smaug's fire which i think brings us to one of the interesting kind of metaphorical components here in this chapter smaug is powerful. Smaug is incredibly powerful. Smaug is one of the most dangerous creatures in all of Middle-earth, and he breathes fire. And the contrast of Smaug and the lake seems pretty straightforward, that Smaug is genuinely evil, and Esgaroth has no chance at all, because it is some buildings rudely constructed on piles driven into the lake bed. That's about as good as it gets. But of course, that's not how the interaction of fire and water work. Fire can't beat water. It could 
presumably with, with sufficient force, boil the water away, but the water would simply return in a different form. The water would simply flow back once more. The lake itself cannot be defeated by Snaug. And he is left with this, this violent and dangerous hit-and-run strategy, of course. But this is not his preferred strategy, it would seem. When Snaug first arrives at Esgaroth, he tries to land on the bridge, the bridge being presumably one of the few things strong enough to support him. This is the bridge from Esgaroth, the, the kind of, uh, not technically floating, I suppose, but basically floating town in the middle of the lake. The bridge leads back to the shore. And throughout here, we see Smaug trying to trying to compensate for this. The bridge has fallen. Smaug has no place to stand. So he is left with these hit and run tactics, trying to drive the people out of Lake Town into their boats to the shore so that he could pick them off at his leisure, at his whim. It's a really, it's a really interesting thematic clash, I think, because as I said, fire can't beat water. And certainly Smaug cannot beat the lake. So even as he is, is ravaging the town, even as he is, is unleashing flame and fury upon Lake Town, upon Esgaroth and upon the residents of this, this town, he isn't getting closer to a meaningful victory because in order, in much the same way as in order to steal the treasure, we must first kill Smaug, in order to destroy Lake Town, he has to overcome the water. And Smaug cannot do that as we see here in our next slide, yeah. The dragon swooped once more lower than ever, and as he turned and dived down, his belly glittered white with sparkling fires of gems in the moon, but not in one place. The great bow twanged. The black arrow sped straight from the string, straight for the hollow by the left breast where the foreleg was flung wide. In it smote and vanished, barb, shaft, and feather, so fierce was its flight. With a shriek that deafened man, felled trees and split stone, Smaug shot spouting into the air, turning over and cr- sorry, turned over and crashed down from on high in ruin. Full on the town he fell. His last throws splintered it to sparks and gleeds. The lake roared in. A vast steam leapt up, white in the sudden dark under the moon. There was a hiss, a gushing whirl, and then silence. And that was the end of Smaug and Esgaroth, but not of Bard. Tiny little uh, bit of foreshadowing there for Bard, yes. <laughs> Um, Lauren asks, so why did the name of Lake Town change? Did I just forget it being called Esgroth in the previous visit? Nope, it was called Lake Town in the previous visit. Esgroth is a name that is introduced in this chapter. This is another part of this, this sudden swing toward a more grandiose and mythic style for this story. We're paying almost no attention to, to the previously established sense of Lake Town. Now Lake Town is Esgroth and has Bard, and there are there are prophecies and forces contained within Lake Town that we didn't really get a sense of when we were here with the dwarves. Yes. Good. He's reassuring his readers there, says Jackie. Bard's not dead. Absolutely. Yes, he's not. I actually love that line. And that was the end of Smaug and Esgaroth, but not of Bard. Interestingly, in early versions of The Hobbit, that sentence read, and that was the end of Smaug and Esgaroth and of Bard because Bard was not supposed to survive this encounter. Ultimately, Tolkien decided that not only would Bard be useful at the Battle of Five Armies, but that he, as a returning king, 
probably could do some good at this point and could be a great leader of men in the years to come. So he went back and he scratched it out and he replaced it with, but not of Bard. That's pretty great. That's pretty great. Yes. As Lauren says, Bard is not killed by the dragon at this time. I'm telling you that because you seem nervous. Yes. Good. Good. And, and Joshua says that Lake Town got more noble in this chapter. And, and Shane calls out that Smaug calls it Esgaroth once before, but that's all. And this, I think, is, is an example of, um, yes, as Kate says on Twitter, Smaug in his conversation with Bilbo called Lake Town Esgaroth. This feels like something which has been retconned and then, and then inserted back into the text in earlier places. I'm sure that this is the moment. It was while Tolkien was writing this chapter that Lake Town became Esgaroth, and then he went back to, to add in that earlier reference. That's very, very consistent with Tolkien's approach to revising these texts. Very good. Like the Princess Bride, says Jackie. Yes, just like the Princess Bride. Good. <laughs> the killing of Smaug is one of my least favorite things about the movies, says Joshrims. Why even bring up the, uh, the Windless in the second movie when the third shows you don't need it? Yeah. Yeah, Bard does not work for me terribly well in the movie adaptations of The Hobbit. Smaug does. I think Smaug is actually really rather good. And the assault on Lake Town is certainly uh, visually stunning, though perhaps, as is so often the case with Peter Jackson movies, perhaps it is a little long. I'm not sure that we need to spend quite as much time doing all that we're doing. But yes, the final showdown between Bard and Smaug is is not great, is not not really as great as we would like it to be. Yeah, yeah. Robert says, yeah, Tolkien has an amazing gift for switching to more legendary language as he writes, some sort of apocalyptic thing. Tolkien was always very, very aware of his own narrative register. And you're absolutely right. As the action becomes more intense, as the stakes get higher, as everything becomes more meaningful, he will almost always elevate his language. He will make it more mythic, more operatic, and in some cases, more biblical. He will go older and deeper and, and wider and larger with his language, the higher the stakes get. So as Esgaroth is, uh, is plunging into fire, Tolkien gets a little, a, little, a little higher here. Yes, good. Oh, I did want to pull out too. Let me, um, huh. Yeah, let me uh, actually go back to that previous slide because there was a detail I wanted to pull out here. Um, where are we? Yes. Fire leapt from the dragon's jaws there in the second paragraph. And then in the third, fire leapt from thatch roofs and wooden beam ends as he hurtled down and passed and round again. I find that really interesting because that is too conspicuous a repetition to be accidental. I think this almost certainly has to be purposeful. And the purpose to which it is put is a really interesting one because here is Lake Town, built out on the lake itself in order, in part, to protect it from Smaug. And because of its construction, because of its nature, it is singularly and uniquely vulnerable to Smaug. The lake itself will consume Smaug, but Lake Town, Esgaroth, doesn't really stand a chance. It never did. So it's interesting for me that in the first instance, we get fire leapt from the dragon's jaws. That is, if you like, the primary point of interaction. That is the the first point of interaction. This is Smaug taking action directly, exhibiting his agency. But then, fire leapt from thatched roofs and wooden beam ends. Here we see something that is more, um, more akin to a natural disaster, I suppose. Smaug is the origin point of this fire, but he is not in control of 
the fire, not all of it. Yeah. Good. All right. Um, yes, let's push on then. This is the final. Oh, I, I guess we've just done. Yes, we just did the final death of uh, of Smaug here. So we can actually push on. I can't believe I'm 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 almost done with my slides. This is the last slide. You guys, we're going to be done in 90 minutes. This is going to be fantastic. Um, this is the very end of the chapter. After the death of Smaug, we uh, get some politicking. We get a sense of the internal life of Esgroth, which is also, by the way, a sharp shift from our previous depiction of Lake Town. It doesn't quite feel harmonious with this version of Lake Town. Though that can be accounted for, I think, by simply the, the shift in our POV. When we first see Lake Town, we are still in Bilbo's POV. We're experiencing Lake Town as he does. So it's entirely possible that he would refer to it as Lake Town and not pay attention to Bard and all the other little inconsistencies between the two chapters. Here, though, we are in some other POV, some, some more grandiose, more heightened third-person POV. And right at the end of the chapter, we get this. But all the men of arms who were still able, and most of the elven king's array, got ready to march north to the mountain. It was thus that in eleven days from the ruin of the town, the head of their host passed of the rock gates at the end of the lake and came into the desolate lands. This is foreshadowing the Battle of Five Armies, which will be the final confrontation more than just the final confrontation, honestly, which will be the, the final set piece, the, the final conflict of this book. And if you think we've seen some tonal deviations so far, stick around because we're going to see some more when we get to it. Yes. Good. Good. Jackie says, I love that the elves come to the aid of the men of Lake Town so quickly. They've got a strong relationship. Friends of elves. Reminds me of the early days of Middle Earth. Yes, I like that. Good. Shane says, does this call back to the passive destruction of the dragon in the, in the Dwarves' Misty Mountain song? Yes, I think it does. That was one of the, that was one of the things I was thinking of, is that, that Smaug's presence almost enkindles destruction, I, I guess, literally, enkindles destruction. But, but Smaug's presence itself seems to cause destruction. Yes, he breathes fire and ignites the town, but then the town ignites itself. Smaug is simply nearby. He is simply close. His influence is spreading outward and outward and outward. So yes, yes, I think that's uh, I think that's very powerful there. Good. Good. David says, I find it interesting that the master seems to be, seems more bureaucratic than Bard because Bard is a king. Bard is a king and the master is a civil servant. And one of those two things is really good in Tolkien's depiction of the world. And one of those things is somewhat less good in Tolkien's depiction of the world. Yes. Good. Yes, yes, yes. Willa says the master is definitely more modern and less medieval. Again, one of these things is good in Tolkien's world. One of these things is less good. The fact that the master is, yes, effectively a modern politician. In fact, we even talk about elections here in, in Esgaroth. The restitution of the, the monarchy here for the people of Esgaroth is so much more than... Hmm. It's so much more than a convenient plot point, and it's so much more than a reward for Bard. This is, I think, in, in Tolkien's conception, something of a restitution of justice, a, a restoration of justice, rather. We're moving back toward a, a positive and harmonious natural order that the master, as a modern politician, is not to be liked and not to be trusted and, and, and certainly not fit to lead this community. Bard, by virtue of blood, by virtue of divine right, can rule this town, can lead this town, and will be, most importantly, great at it. Because kings really are special. They really are 
appointed by God or by luck or by lineage or whatever, but they really are special. Bard, because he is the heir of Geryon, can now lead. This is his place. And the people of Lake Town recognize that even as they think that he's dead. Even when they think he has died in the final battle against Smaug, they say, oh man, too bad he's dead. He would have made a great king, King Bard. We could have had King Bard the Bowman. It would have been fantastic. Kings are special. Bard is special. And a few of you are calling out here, of course, that uh, a few of you are calling out here, of course, that Bard also kind of foreshadows Aragorn. There are definite similarities there. Yes, it would be it would be um, it would be disingenuous to suggest otherwise. Yes, good. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Uh, David says, I'm going through the first session of the Harry Potter podcast uh, that, that you have. It seems like they are looking back, not forward, like you said, England does. Yes, I think that there is something here. This is um, this is emblematic of Tolkien's uh, perspective on antiquity versus modernity, I think, that, that Tolkien values older things. Tolkien was a medievalist in more than the literary sense. Tolkien believed, I think, in the feudal system. He believed in a, a natural hierarchy, a benevolent hierarchy. You know, when we think of the feudal system, we oftentimes think of, of tyranny, and that's not the feudal system at its best. In the feudal system at its best, everyone has a place, yes, and there's effectively no social mobility within that, but Everyone is cared for. Everyone is protected. The hierarchy exists for the betterment of all. Again, in real history, not so true, but the, the idealized form of, of feudalism absolutely incorporates that idea of, of benevolent monarchy. Yeah. Um, as, as Sam says, Tolkien, not a fan of democracy, less a fan of democracy than he is of other systems of government. I think it's probably fair to say. Good. Sometimes, as Sabrina says here, sometimes stewards become kings, so maybe it's not that far off. Yes, yes. We're talking about uh, stewards, ver uh, regents versus royalty. Yes, good. Yeah. Uh, because Sabrina says, I have to admit, I hate the whole divine right of kings thing. It always irritates me in Tolkien's works. I can completely see that. To modern eyes, this is very, very difficult. To modern sensibilities, this feels regressive. It feels ungainly. It feels unjust. And while I am sympathetic to that, we kind of just have to buy into the idea that Tolkien is presenting a... A, well, I was going to say Tolkien is presenting a classic fantasy world. He's not. Tolkien is creating classic fantasy. Tolkien is creating this idea of this, this medieval-style society or a number of different medieval-style societies. And of course, we must remember that, that there are other versions of, of society and culture presented to us within the frame here, too. Yes. The Hobbits, of course, the Shire, that has no truck with kings. There is no King Hobbit out there. This is a much more uh, communal, much more agrarian, much more in its way, anarchic society. The Shire is, is libertarian paradise, I suppose. Is that what we're to take from this? I made myself sad saying those words out loud. That's a terrible thing. Okay, good. Tolkien is a monarchist, says Death or Glory Toad here on Twitter, based on what, uh, based on what we read in his legendarium and his religious inclinations. Yes, likely a monarchist. Yes, good. Good. I, I completely agree. And that speaks so powerfully to his, his, his antiquarian inclinations, to, to his, his medievalist uh, inclinations, yes. That, that there was simply, there was before the world got so busy and loud, a harmony. That, I think, is what Tolkien is leaning toward in all of his works, peace and harmony. This is a structure that speaks to everyone. The, the, the best form of feudalism, the best kinds of feudalism that we see in Tolkien's work 
there is no exploitation there. There is only a kind of societal unity. And it is a societal unity predicated on the divine right of kings. It is a societal unity predicated on the idea that some people, hey, they're just special. And if you are born a dung keeper, then you will be a dung keeper for all of your days. There's no social mobility baked into this, this culture here. But that's, you know, just a different way of approaching these same problems. I do want to talk a little about the uh, about the final death of Smaug and about the um, the thematic impact of the final death of Smaug, because of course, Smaug is the fire, and he cannot defeat the lake. The lake will always consume him as he as he crashes into it. The lake effortlessly, effortlessly consumes him. And it struck me as I was reading The Hobbit, um, perhaps not this last time, but maybe the time before, that. There's a, there's a sense in which this speaks very powerfully to Tolkien's conception of good and evil, too. That evil is self-destructive. That within the works of Tolkien, evil almost always destroys itself. Now, evil is also a great temptation. Good men will almost always falter toward evil, falter toward tyranny, falter toward the desire for power, the desire for wealth, the desire for the domination of others. But ultimately, evil will destroy itself as fire will destroy itself. These two forces, fire and water, one of these two is self-sustaining. One of these two is, is propagative in that sense. The fire will burn and ravage and decimate and consume and then be consumed. In exactly the same way as within Tolkien's moral and theological framework, evil can never stand against good because evil will always falter and good will always triumph, ultimately, even though it is painful, even though it is difficult. In the same way, fire and water occupy those same spots, those same kinds of... of, of there, there is a similar kind of thematic relationship between those two elemental principles. And of course, the, the, the elemental juxtaposition of fire and water is as old as human beings are. As soon as we had an awareness of fire... There was a, a, I'm sure, a rich storytelling narrative history about, about the metaphorical opposition of these two things. Yeah, good, good. As Chesley says, not only does the water consume Smaug, but after his death, it completely destroys his body over time. Yes, excellent, excellent. As David says, love the description of how the lake, the lake always consumes the bone. Good. Very good. All right. It is almost 9.30, and I guess we are ready to wrap up, which I'm going to tell you is, is pretty good because I've done a lot of podcasts this week, and I am glad to uh, bring this one in on time. That, that's not too much to ask, I think, this week. Let's take a look at this final slide and prepare ourselves for next week. Next week, The Hobbit, chapters 15 and 16, The Gathering of the Clouds and A Thief in the Night as we move toward the final movement of this story. And I should say, stay tuned there may be some last-minute adjustments of the There and Back Again schedule next week. It is possible that I will be accelerating our pace a little and maybe doing a session next Thursday, that is April 6th, then another session on that Sunday, which would be April 7th, 8th, 9th, and then another session the following Thursday. So I may squeeze in an extra session between the two Thursday sessions uh, that week. That's in part because I really want to do a Sunday session because I know that I have a lot of people who can't make it on a Thursday night. And in part for, for personal scheduling reasons, I just need to bring this up and then take uh, the week off between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings one week earlier. We'll see how that works out. Just stay tuned to Twitter is ideally the best way to keep up with this stuff. Uh, 
you can head on over to Twitter. You can follow me personally at Paper Bullets, or you can follow Point North Media at Point North Media, or you can head on over to Facebook.com slash Point North Media and follow there. And when the website is back up, that's pointnorthmedia.com, then you can head over there. You can subscribe to the newsletter. You can do all the things that you need to do in order to stay up to date with all the things that we are doing over at Point North. Guys, that's everyone's very excited about getting to the Lord of the Rings, apparently. We only have a couple more weeks of The Hobbit left, you guys. And, and things are about to take a very um, things are about to take a very Lord of the Rings style turn. In its final movement, The Hobbit pretty much abandons the kind of tone and style that it has established up to this point. And arguably, um, Fire and Water is the point at which we, 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 we change The Hobbit into something else. But uh, certainly by the end of the book, we are going to be dealing with a kind of story which always feels to me as though it would be more at home in The Lord of the Rings than it is in The Hobbit. So I'm really looking forward to that. We are, I think, going to do some kind of special thing about the quest of Erebor. I still want to go back and do a, a special Silmarillion session on um, on Aule and Yavanna and the creation of the dwarves and maybe just on the the creation of all life in Arda. That might be a really interesting discussion just to talk about, about creation myths, talk about the Annalindale, and then talk about the coming of elves, talk about the coming of men, talk about the, uh, the, the, the dwarves, and maybe even talk a little about orcs and their tangled and mysterious history too. Yeah. Good. We're, we're really looking forward to this. Oh, Sam asks here, uh, are we doing the movies also? We are. We're doing all the movies after the Lord of the Rings books. So what we're going to do is uh, move from The Hobbit into Fellowship, then into The Two Towers, then into The Return of the King. And then finally, we're going to do uh, six sessions on the Lord of the Rings trilogy itself. So, so two sessions per movie. Then we'll take like a skip week. And then we're going to do six sessions on the Hobbit trilogy which is a little more difficult. Honestly, the Hobbit trilogy is not that great. It's not a terribly good way of ending the Dairy Back Again seminar, but then I'm sure there will be some extra one-shot features right at the end. There are a few people that I'd really like to talk to about their relationship with Tolkien. I'm still, you know, I have a spot open for Stephen Colbert if he'd ever like to come on and talk about Tolkien with me. That I think would be just fantastic. You can definitely all tweet him about that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> definitely don't do that, you guys. That would be a terrible thing. Um, but yeah, I have a few interviews that I'd like to conduct, a few people that I'd like to talk to. So even after we're done with The Hobbit, there and back again, we'll continue for four, six, eight weeks after that anyway. So we won't conclude with a bad taste in the mouth is what it comes down to. And even then, I think the discussions about The Hobbit trilogy will be fascinating because those movies are, I, I, as I've said before, I like the first Hobbit movie. I think it really works. The second one has some problems. The third one is disastrous. But when it is disastrous, it is still, I think, disastrous in interesting ways. So I'm actually genuinely curious to talk about the adaptation process there and to talk about to talk about really the style and the, the tone of Peter Jackson's storytelling. I think that there's something interesting to be gained from that. So it's not going to be a completely, you know, depressing trudge through six weeks of Hobbit movies. Good. All right. Guys, thank you all so much for joining me. Uh, The podcast version of this will be available just as soon as I can get it up on the website. As soon as the website starts working again, there will be a podcast feed for this. As I said, stay tuned tomorrow for the Point North uh, Q&A live stream. If you have questions, you can email me directly, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. Any question, nothing is off the table for those Patreon-exclusive live streams. So you can just ask me anything. I've had some really interesting questions already this week. I'm going to be talking a little about Hamilton tomorrow, you guys. That's going to be really fun. Um, And then we're going to uh, have Rogue One on Saturday. So stay tuned for that too. I'll be back next week with more. Until then, thank you so much for joining me. Take care.